So here we are today uh, in week one ever of a series that we're totally just talking about St. Paul. Uh, we kind of had wanted to do this for a while. And then our friend Natalie came and did a little uh, a, a talk for us. And that got that piqued our interest in even more. So we decided to dedicate a whole sermon series that's taking mo- most of this summer up to just kind of sift through some of the writings and teachings of the Apostle Paul. And okay, so many of us have a tricky relationship with this this guy, this biblical figure. And his writings have historically been, in my opinion, misinterpreted and used by the church to marginalize women, to to demonize LGBTQ plus folks, to reinforce hierarchical systems, and even to justify such horrors as slavery and genocide. So some of us, we're not unjustified if we say we can't stand the Apostle Paul. So in this sermon series, we want to take a fresh look. And I just want to do two things today, just two little little meager things. Um, One is that I want to present Paul to us as a human, as a flawed and imperfect, in-progress person. And two is I just want to briefly highlight a few things that I really like about his ideas, specifically one we find in today's lectionary epistle, which Drew just read, regarding new creation. So um, Paul is a person whose reputation precedes him in his time and place. We first meet Paul, then he was called Saul, which is kind of a scriptural, something that happened, sort of a trope or a, um, a, um, a tool that scripture uses, where people tend to give themselves a new name whenever they mark a major, major life transition. So you see it when um, you see it in a lot of biblical characters. So at the end of Acts 7, okay, we're in the book of Acts, Acts 7, uh, Paul, then Saul, is very, is doing something very characteristic of him. He is overseeing an execution, and it is the execution of a Christ follower named Stephen. Stephen had been appointed by the 12 disciples in the handful of years following the departure of the physical Christ, and Things during this time were very, very dangerous for anyone known to follow Christ or what they, as they might have called it, the way. And they were dangerous because of this man, Saul, in large part. In fact, I want to share with you the first few verses of Acts 8 in which we meet the villain, Saul. Okay, Stephen's being stoned to death. It's gory, it's brutal, it's horrible. And Saul... The Acts 8 completely approved of the killing. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly women and men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for, for him. During this time, Saul worked for the total collapse of the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off women and men and put them in prison. So Saul is a bad dude. Some extra biblical uh, scholars that I've read go so far as to even believe that Saul was one of the main leaders responsible for the crucifixion. Like that he was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin that pushed for Rome to execute Christ. 
that story is not in the biblical text, but we could imagine how that might be true. Because regardless, we know that Saul was going around doing murder and villainy to anyone he suspected of following Christ. We know that, that Saul was zealously against Christ followers and in a defensive posture regarding his own societal norms and traditions. He feels very threatened by anything to do with Christ, and he is willing to do any bloody deed it takes to eradicate Christ's influence. Which brings us to our main reading for today. I'm reading out of the Inclusive Bible to Saul's story in Acts 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. It's a little bit long, but buckle up because I think we need to hear it. Okay. Meanwhile, Saul continued to breathe murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. He had gone up to the high priest and asked for letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus that would authorize him to arrest and take to Jerusalem any followers of the way that he could find both women and men. As he traveled along and was approaching Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed about him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Saul asked. The voice answered, I'm Jesus and you are persecuting me. Get up now and go into the city where you will be told what to do. Those traveling with him were speechless, and they heard the voice but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, unable to see, even though his eyes were open. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. For three days, he continued to be blind, during which time he ate and drank nothing. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Christ appeared to him in a vision saying, Ananias, and Ananias said, here I am. Then Christ said to him, go at once to Straight Street and at the house of Judah, ask for a certain Saul of Tarsus. He is there praying. And Saul had a vision that a man named Ananias will come and lay hands on him so that he would recover his sight. But Ananias protested. I have heard from many sources about Saul and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here now with authorization from the chief priests to arrest everybody who calls on your name. And Christ said to Ananias, go anyway. Saul is the instrument, instrument I have chosen to bring my name to the Gentiles, to rulers, and to the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he'll have to suffer for my name. With that, Ananias left. When he entered the house, he laid his hands on Saul, saying, Saul, my brother, I have been sent by Jesus Christ, who appeared to you on the way here to help you recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and his strength returned after he had eaten some food. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and soon began proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus was the only begotten of God. Everyone who heard Saul was amazed. They said, isn't this the one who wiped out those in Jerusalem who called on the name of Jesus? Didn't Saul come here just so he could bring them in chains before the chief priests? But Saul kept growing in strength and confounding the Jewish authorities in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so somehow miraculously, but a bit suspiciously, right? Saul does a complete 180. He goes from Christian killer 
to zealous Christ preacher. And eventually he changes his name in chapter 13 of Acts. I don't blame him for changing his name. I would want to distance myself from that bloodthirsty reputation too. But this is something that I really appreciate about Paul and his story, how he goes from villain, terrible killer, evilly defending his ideology, which is a form of ancient Judaism, against any taint of what he perceives to be heresy. He is literally hunting his enemies down. He's a bad guy. And then he has a change of heart. He wakes up. He becomes aware of this ego defense thing he's doing to such detriment. And this comes about because he gets into proximity with Jesus, with the Christ. He has a profound mystical experience of the presence of Christ, and it changes him and his life forever. So much so that these days, a lot of religious people tend to trust Paul's words over Christ's own. That you see me giving the side eye, that's I'm giving the side eye because I think that's a really um, a, a real problem among Western Christianity and especially here in the U.S. So Paul's not the Christ and his words should not be worshipped as such. Paul is a retired supervillain, you guys. He's a reformed descent squasher and a recovering ego addict. And personally, I, like many of you, am pretty skeptical of Paul for this reason, but also I'm challenged by that because Paul mirrors myself back to myself. He shows me my own ego addiction too. And Paul's story is so crazy because he goes from a man who's doggedly trying to keep any taint of Christ out of his religion to a person who is doggedly flinging open the doors and saying, come on in, everyone's welcome. It is a radical transformation, a radical change of heart. And the beauty of this story, in part, is that it shows us that no one is beyond the love of Christ or beyond the possibility of transformation once we let go of our ego addiction. No one is irredeemable. Not even supervillains are unlovable by God, nor are they incapable of profound change. Now, sometimes it takes an act of God for the most stubborn among us to change, but hallelujah, if it happened for Saul, it can happen for us. Now, at this point, what do we know about Saul or Paul as he's now known? We know. He has a past. If I were him, I'd be pretty ashamed of that past once I woke up to it. But we don't see him, at least recorded in the text. We don't see him wallowing in shame about his past mistakes. He seems to move on pretty quickly. Uh, we know that whatever Paul Saul does, he does with absolute zeal and conviction. He does nothing halfway. And he does not have the lukewarm bone in his body. He is full tilt in whatever ideology he's embraced. And that seems familiar, right? You know some people like that. We either know them or we are them. People who go all in to whatever we're passionate about. Some of us think this through beforehand and others of us don't, but regardless, that's that some of us can relate to being that way. Another thing about Paul is that because of his history, he has a really strong sense of how dangerous any po political ideology is during these times. So a few months back when Natalie Webb, our friend who is a Pauline scholar at Baylor, uh, she taught a workshop about Paul for our people. It was March, I think. 
she made a comment that I wrote down in my notebook and it stuck with me. She said something to the effect of this. Paul knew that the early church were considered to be Jewish heretics and he knew that their movement was political, but his big concern is keeping his people alive and out of jail. Natalie was saying that she, she attributes a lot of what we consider to be Paul's kind of us versus them language to be coming from this drive to simply stay alive in the midst of all the persecution swirling around them. And it's important to remember that almost all of these figures in the early church, Paul, Peter, James, and many more were for sure all executed either by the Jews or by Rome. And tradition holds that all of the disciples were martyred. Natalie also said something else that stuck with me. Um, in his writings, which are some of the earliest Christian writings, the gospels have not been written at the time that Paul's writing his letters. He's essentially a new pastor, fresh out of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who has no idea what he's doing. He's making it up as he goes along. So in some ways, the letters, which we'll get into more, I'm sure, in the coming weeks, are a record of Paul's failures as well as his successes. He doesn't get it all right. Now, he's a really strong, I might even say he's a belligerent personality. Uh, that's my opinion. You can disagree with it if you want to. But he gets into fights with people. He breaks up, for instance, with his longtime travel buddy Barnabas in Acts 15. He gets into a fight with Peter and they part ways, which is a story that Paul tells uh, in Galatians 2. His story is just, it's fraught with difficulty and conflict and he doesn't have an easy life or an easy story. And this kind of endears me to him. His humanity and his scramble to survive and his total change of heart and mind at presumably at midlife, his fractiousness. When I look at St. Paul as a human with all the accompanying flaws and tendencies to make mistakes and misinterpret and do or say the wrong thing, especially as I think of him here at the birth of a new religion, okay? The birth of a whole new paradigm. I'm able to have compassion for him. Paul's story gives me a lot of feelings. As I said, I'm pretty suspicious of him, but I'm also impressed by someone who can make the intellectual leaps that Paul has made in his life. Like there's part of me that sort of doesn't want to forgive him yet for all the harm he's caused in the subsequent two millennia, but I also kind of want to. And I wonder if maybe you want to also. So I personally don't like how Paul seems so obsessed with atonement. Maybe you can agree, maybe you disagree. I think his viewfinder was colored by having been a part of that ancient Judaic tradition of animal sacrifice. He spent a life steeped in a paradigm that emphasizes the necessity of sacrifice for atonement that thinks that some blood has to be shed in order for God to be okay with humans. So of course, Paul thinks that Jesus is a sacrifice for sin. That's the paradigm that he understands. And I can forgive him 
for thinking whatever when I take his story into context. Look, he has no scriptures to go on. He's got, he doesn't, the New Testament that we rely on to inform our current version of Christianity, they haven't been written yet in Paul's time. He's got the Jewish scriptures, which we now call the First Testament, and his own experience, his own experience with Jesus and with myst- with having mystical experiences of Jesus. He's trying to make a cohesive story given his experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I see how a lot of people hang on to atonement theologies and ways of understanding that that way of understanding the work of Christ. I personally don't think that way anymore. My own theology is has left penal substitutionary atonement behind and for sure I've left any uh, notion of animal or human sacrifice being necessary to quell the wrath of God. But I don't fault Paul for his theology considering the depth of his immersion in that paradigm of death and sacrifice and considering all the ways, all the really amazing ways that we see him progress in the text. In fact, I see him wrestling with this issue. His old paradigm says that God's wrathful and death and sacrifice are needed to appease that wrath. And this new paradigm that he's heard from Jesus who says, and don't forget, Paul didn't hear hear Jesus say this for himself that we know of, So it seems to kind of be a loose end for him, okay? Jesus who says God and God's love and God's community and God's presence are right here waiting for us to wake up to them from wherever we are. Jesus over and over recorded as saying, the community of heaven is right here. It's near, it's waiting for us to live inside of it whenever we're ready. And I think we see that wrestling in today's epistle that, Uh, that Drew read for us. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and raised for them. So he's like working it out. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. Oh, he gets something somewhere good. We regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. Now we know him in a better way. We get this like bird's eye view of Paul trying to work out this disconnect. Almost like he's trying to convince himself that God is loving and good and willing to pluck us right out of paradigms that equate suffering with goodness. Okay, friends, here's the whole story as I interpret it, okay? (laughs) Soundbite. This group of humans spends millennia thinking that God is a bloodthirsty, glory-hungry, fickle meanie. And Jesus comes along saying, hey, y'all, that's the story your human ego told you so you could create God in your own image. You don't have to go along with that old story anymore. And of course, what happened? They killed Jesus because that old story props up all the human power structures and anything and anyone who threatens the narrative threatens the flow of power and wealth to the powerful and wealthy. So the powerful and wealthy try to eliminate Jesus because Jesus' story is that God is loving and welcomes all. And that story disrupts human power structures. We tell you all this all the time. This is the story. And Saul, bless him, gets a whiff of Jesus. He gets this momentary experience of someone 
truly representing God, someone truly representing new creation. And then he spends the rest of his life writing and thinking and talking about it and trying to reconcile the human power structure paradigm with the universal love paradigm. We've all done that, huh? We get some new information and we have to sort of work out how to fit it into what we thought we already knew. And so for a while, we maybe vacillate between the old and the new. It's like when you get in a different car that you're not used to driving and the gear shift is in a different place, but you keep reaching for the old place where the gear shift used to be. Or like um, when you start to internalize the truth of your innate belovedness, someone tells you, okay, here I'm telling you, you are unconditionally beloved. And you're like, yeah. And then the next day you catch yourself thinking critical and judgmental thoughts about yourself again. I know that the writings of Paul are directly responsible for a lot of trauma. I don't think Paul intended that, but I think that our human nature to do things, humans are getting human. I could go on and on about all the things that annoy me about Paul's writings. But I do think that Paul was doing his best, given his story and his time and place and his belligerent personality. He was a human. And of course, he screwed up things now and then. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about Paul is that after he spent so many years killing and imprisoning anyone who threatened his interpretation of his faith, and after he has these revelations, these like really mind-boggling experiences with Christ. He spends the rest of his life throwing open the gates. He says, oh, oh, it's not just Jews who are invited. It's everyone. It's, it's, it's not just free men who are invited, but it's also women and enslaved people, even the non-binary eunuch. Let's, let's see Paul as the human being that he is and try to place him in his context, in his time and place and paradigm so that we can see him for who he is. And remember, his writings are the earliest records we have of this little love movement that Christ started. The disciples didn't get everything right when Christ was still on the earth. Remember Jesus yelling at Peter to get behind me, Satan? Peter wasn't getting it all right when Jesus was right in front of him. Why would we think that he, John, Paul, Mary Magdalene, Barnabas, Junia, and all the rest would get everything right after Jesus was no longer in residence. It's preposterous. So my point is that Paul is not the Messiah and never claims to be. He has a bunch of things that I would consider misinterpretations and cultural programs and biases that he can't see past just like the rest of us do. And he's a newbie pastor who hasn't had a, he hasn't got a clue how to pastor and he's just bumbling along. I can relate to that. He has this deeply violent and bloody history, but he spends his second life primarily concerned with resurrection and new creation life and with getting out the message that the whole earth is in on the goodness of God. Honestly, y'all. I have had it with people who tell me that I have to throw Christ away because of some stuff that Paul wrote. I literally hear people say this, that Christianity is bad and Christ is untrustworthy because Paul. Good Lord, my patience for that is so thin. I have no intention of letting Paul hold my faith or my spirituality 
hostage. I'm just not scared of Paul anymore. In the end, Paul demonstrates himself to be a brilliant thinker and preacher. He's so compelling. He's deeply thoughtful. And he gives us some of the most beautiful ideas in Christendom, haunting, poetic paragraphs like new creation that we heard. In Paul, we see a human being embracing a radical change of heart and mind. And we can have some compassion for him, just like we're learning to have compassion for ourselves as we too are on a journey of radical heart and mind and soul transformation. We too are letting go of bad ideas so that we can make way for good and uplifting and heart-centered and loving ones. And we can look at Paul and his journey and his writings and hold them up to the reflection of Christ and hold them up to our own inner knowing and our own lived experience and use our free will and our mental faculties to learn what we need from his story. And I think the thing that Paul wants you and I to know, and the thing that I want us to know, I want y'all to know, is that we are, in our essence, new creation and creators of new creation. Remember that last line of the lectionary reading from earlier. If anyone is in Christ, okay, I interpret that to mean if anyone has adopted the consciousness of Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. At any moment, we get the opportunity to decide what version of ourselves we're going to be. How much of our new creation status are we going to live out? Are we going to be new creation, creating new reality and living inside of new creation, living the version of ourselves that is truest and best? Well, Paul wants us to know that we have that choice just like he did. Everything past is folded up in forgiveness and everything now can be, if we choose it, us living from the truth of new creation. Amen.